0: Father, thank you this evening for the appetite that is present tonight. Those who have gathered to study to hear the Scripture, the Word of God, you promised that your Word, when it goes out, would not return empty. It would accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. It is like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces. O God, break hardened hearts tonight. Plow the fallow ground. Plant the seed of your word deep within good soil as you would find it here tonight. For our hearts are open. We not only want to hear, but we want to bring forth much fruit and ever glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, chapters 14 through 20, midway through chapter 20, are all of the chapters the Bible uses to talk about the wilderness wanderings. That's not much, especially when you think that altogether it was 40 years, technically it was 37 to 38 years of strict wandering, but only four chapters to cover it, and each chapter has one incident in it. So four incidents cover about 40 years of carnal disobedience. That's interesting to me. And I think the reason for it is that when you're out of God's will, you don't have much to say. You don't have much to tell. And I think we should remember that when we give testimonies. Some people, when they give their testimonies, love to glorify how bad they were. I used to do this and I used to do that. You don't have really much to tell. The good part, the testimony, is that you are saved. You are a sinner saved by God's grace. All of those wasted years, wasted time, they could have been in the land enjoying it. That was God's original design, but they really circumvented it by their disbelief. Now in chapter 20, they're back in Kadesh once again, Kadesh Barnea. Remember that place? It's like deja vu for Moses. He'd been there before. Now this is a new generation, some 37 years later back again at the very gate, the entrance to the Promised Land, the older generation. Most of them had died by now. And uh, in this chapter, death is like the bookends to the chapter. It begins with the death of Miriam. It ends with the death of Aaron. Miriam is 127 years old. It's time for her to go. Aaron is 123 years. Oh, time for him to go. Women do live longer than men generally. 123? Good enough. Moses dies the same year, though it's not recorded here, but it will be recorded later in Deuteronomy. In the same year they all die. Moses, 120 years old when he kicks the bucket. Now we know that Moses is meek. In fact, we're told he's the meekest man in all the Earth. I'll tell you what, Moses has a lot longer fuse than I have. He has a lot more patience with people than I have. I find many times the smallest things can tick me off and I can lose my patience. Yet, this guy is so, lo- he, he really epitomizes long suffering. He suffered long with these people, he was patient. But we see here, he has enough. In this chapter, It's kind of like the veneer is peeled away, and we see a side of Moses. We may think really didn't exist, but it was there all along. Moses had a problem with anger. Deep inside he had a problem with anger, and he reveals it here, and it really will cost him uh, in this chapter and and later on. i got to say, I feel sorry for Moses. I do not envy him. I would not like to lead that big of a group. Listen, you think this church is large? How would you like to be out where there's three million in your church? You probably would never in your lifetime meet half of the people that you're traveling with. And here's Moses, God's man. He's, he's burnt out by now, folks. He's vindicated. It's just like, oh, here we are again. I hope we make it this time. I think he wishes he could just, you know, pack up the wife and kids, pack up the camels, take a little vacation to a nice little oasis. But he won't be able to do that. Uh, I want you to turn to Psalm 39 as we we haven't even gotten started in the first verse, but no matter. They wandered. why don't we? (laughs) Psalm 39. See if you can relate to this experience. I said, I will guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. You've said that. I'm going to bite my lip in this situation. I'm not going to say anything. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. I was mute with silence, so far so good. I even held my peace, I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred up. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned, then I spoke with my tongue." Have you ever been in a situation where you just are determined to keep silent, your emotions get the better of you, and finally you just explode? You, you've had enough. You're just so angry, you just, you, you let it out. You lash out. While I was musing, the fire burned, and I spoke with my tongue. That's how anger works. Anger is more than an emotion. It is tied to your physiology. There's biochemical reactions that take place when you get angry. Adrenaline is pumped from your adrenal glands. Your heart starts pumping faster. Because of that, your blood pressure is elevated. Because of that, your eyes are dilated. Your peripheral vision is more acute now. You are in, like, attack mode. You're in an alarm reaction state. Your palms get sweaty. A sudden burst of energy comes into your body, your arms and legs. I mean, you can just do almost anything in that state. So your emotions are tied to your body, your physiology. Here's a guy, he says, I'm going to hold my emotions down. And then here he just blows up. He flies off the handle and then he regrets it later on. I spoke with my tongue and, and he blew up. It's been said that he who flies into a rage has trouble making a safe landing. Moses, in this chapter, flies into a rage. God tells him to do something. He sort of does it, but his emotions get the better of him. I think his blood pressure is raised, and he takes this rod in his hand. Instead of speaking to the rock, he smites it. He beats it hard. And he, just like Psalm 39, uh, he blows up. When I was a kid, I really did have a problem with anger. I'm not saying I'm perfect now, believe me. But by God's grace, things are changing. But as a kid, and really, I won't blame my dad. I take full responsibility for it. But he modeled the short fuse very well. Little things would get him, and he'd fly off the handle. And then later on, when I find myself as a teenager, I I'm never going to be like that. I'm going to be cool as a cucumber. Little things would just set me off. I got angry. I've told you the stories of the holes in the doors. I put big holes in the uh, lawn out front with my motorcycle as I just dug it down and peeled out and took my guitar and busted it, not because I wanted to be the who or something like that. I just was angry. I broke it, shattered it. Now that's a side of Moses you don't expect to see, but you see it in chapter 20 as he misrepresents God. Now, before we go into this and talk a little more about anger, not all anger is sinful. You're commanded to be angry, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Be angry. That's a present imperative in the Greek language. It is a commandment to you to be angry. But it says, be angry, but do not sin, or don't let your anger lead you to sin. There is an appropriate time for anger. The anger of the Lord is mentioned 18 times in the Old Testament alone. God got angry and it wasn't sin. He was angry at sin. He was angry at what sin did to people. It's funny how people will think of Jesus Christ, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child, and we should take all of our cues from Jesus, Jesus got angry. Matthew chapter 23, and I don't think you can read that chapter without emotion. How can you read the words such as, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are whitewashed sepulchres, all white on the outside, full of dead men's bones on the inside. How can you read that without emotion? I mean, you could read it like that, but I think he was seething. What about overturning those tables of the money changers in the temple? You think he went out there with just a big smile on his face, excuse me, could you stand aside? I'd like to overturn your table. (laughs) He was angry. And anger isn't sin. When you're angry, when it's righteous indignation, when you're angry at sin. But it can become sin. That emotion can sort of overwhelm you, take advantage of you in a sense, get the better of you. It can lead you to sin. It can lead you to distra- it can lead you to hatred. When that part of you, your endocrine system starts dictating the way that you operate, when you make a choice to respond to it wrongfully, and it leads you to hatred, then you're a murderer, Jesus said. Whoever hates his brother is guilty of murder, he said. And so What makes the difference between the first and second parts of Ephesians 4.26, be angry and sin not? It's the choice to obey and respond correctly to that feeling that you have inside, to channel it correctly. And we want to talk a little bit more about that tonight. Let's get into the chapter, Numbers chapter 20. Then the children of Israel and the whole congregation came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. They didn't carry her bones. They just left her where she lay. Now, there was no water for the congregation. So the whole congregation gathered together against Moses and Aaron, and the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died with our brethren when our brethren died before the Lord. Now perhaps, for Moses, being back in Kadesh, it was like a memory trigger for him. Just being there again. Just being in the same surroundings, recalling what happened 37, 38 years before. Remembering the 12 spies that went out and came back. Remembering they went out for 40 days. And now they've wandered a year for every day that they spied out the land. Only two came back with a good report. God judged the nation. Most of them have died by now. And Moses is back again. It's a rerun for Moses. And I think being in a situation like that, it just triggers your memory. And and all of those old patterns come back. It's like if you go back to some of your old friends or some old situations it's funny. You think, oh, I've conquered that. I'm done with that temptation. But it's interesting when you get back into your old scene again with your old friends, your old town, the old buddies, the old bar, it triggers your memory. The patterns come back. You're susceptible. I remember, you know, I couldn't wait to get out of the house as a kid. Seventeen years old, I was gone. I left. I was on my own. I remember the problems, the arguments I had with my folks. And then I became a Christian and I thought, man, it's all over with. I'm redeemed. I'm just a cool guy now. I'm going to come back and they're going to think, you know, I've been canonized a saint. And there I was back in that situation and those same feelings started coming back. I thought, I had victory over that. And I think Moses, Just being back there triggers his memory, and those same feelings start coming back. And so (laughs) they start complaining once again. And by this time, we're not surprised. Just go, okay, another complaint. They contended with Moses. Listen to their request. If only we had died with our brethren when our brethren died before the Lord. They could be referring to their parents. They could be referring, and more probably, to what happened in chapter 16, when Korah and his 250 guys, and then later on a whole bunch of the children of Israel were condemned and judged by God. If only we had died. I've told you my response to that. I would have said either amen or, Well, we can arrange that. (laughs) Why have you brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place, it's not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. Nor is there any water to drink. You see, they heard the stories; they got all of the verbal commercials. It's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, Kadesh, I got to tell you. Okay, let's say I promised you, I'm going to take you to the most green, lush place, and I take you out past the volcano cliffs, past Rio Rancho, and I go, okay, uh, here we are. You would be disappointed. Here they are at Kadesh. It's the gateway. Hebron is not far and the rolling hills of Judea are not far, but they don't see it. They go, this is it? This is the land you promised us? This is an evil place. Nor is there any water to drink. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. They fell on their faces. They keep doing that, you notice. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod. Perhaps he meant the rod of Aaron that budded, that we saw last time. And your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to the rock. Here's your instruction, Moses. See that rock? I want you to talk to it. Now, they're going to think you're a little weird talking to stones, but those are the instructions. Just go over to that rock and start talking to that rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock, and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels! Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly in the congregation, and their animals drank. Now, freeze frame this for a moment and play the film back, way back. Moses had a problem. We've overlooked it by now. It's been so long. We've forgiven him for it. But there was a time when Moses was still in Egypt, still in the courts of the Pharaoh. And there was the day when walking outside, he noticed that an Egyptian was mistreating a Hebrew. In fact, he was beating him. You remember the story? It says, Moses looked this way, and he looked that way, and he killed the Egyptian. Not like, excuse me, I'm going to protect this man I am now, like, in the court of Pharaoh. I have authority. He's protected. He killed him. He overreacted. He was so angry, he put out his lights, took away his life. He looked this way and that way. His problem, he didn't look that way. Got him in trouble. Forty years later, after being out in the wilderness, he comes back to Pharaoh to be the deliverer for the children of Israel. He's 80 years old. The final announcement that Moses has for Pharaoh is that the firstborn of Egypt will be killed by the last plague. And there's a contention that goes on. And finally it says, Moses left the presence of Pharaoh in great anger or rage. Then there's the incident on Mount Sinai. Comes down, God has spoken to him. He's had a glorious experience. Oh, this is awesome. God speaks to me. I got ten commandments. Comes down and sees the children of Israel, what? Having like an orgy. They built this bull and Aaron was part of it. Said, "Oh well, here we are. And this bull came out of the fire and we started worshiping it and dancing. And Moses was angry. Now, he had a right to be angry. That's righteous indignation. But the way he expressed his anger was wrong. How'd he do it? He took and he broke those things. He threw it down. God did not condone that display of anger. In fact, he said, Moses, now go cut out of the rock two more tablets and write on them yourself what I wrote the first time with my own finger. I wrote it the first time. I'm not going to repeat myself. You write it again. You know, it's sort of like when you're in school and you write something a hundred times when you misbehave. I think that's sort of like that. In fact, it's worse when you have to write in stone even once. (laughs) Now that's Moses' past. Here we come here and God says, Speak to the rock. And he smites it, uh, hits the stone with his rod. Verse 12, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, to hollow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Mirabah because the children of Israel contended with the Lord and he was hollowed among them. Now, he did obey in a sense. He got out there with Moses, he got the people of Israel together, he took the rod, he went over to the rock, and then he departed. From the commandment of the Lord. Instead of just talking to the rock, hey rock, give us water. He he flew into a rage, perhaps like what the psalmist said, I'm gonna bite my tongue, I'm gonna hold it. But then the fire muse, he exploded, he spoke with his tongue. You rebels, must we bring water for you from this rock? I would say he lost control. Now, God is displeased. Number one, he disobeyed God. That is, he did not completely obey God. God said, speak to it, and he hid it. You know, any emotion can get out of control, can it? Any emotion. Emotions are good, but emotions aren't reliable. You know, if you always live by how you feel, you'll be a basket case. And yet people say, oh, just do what's in your heart. Don't do what's in your heart in terms of what you feel like doing. Do what you know is right. If I live by my feelings, I wouldn't get up till about 10 in the morning. When my alarm goes off at six o'clock, which it does every day, I look at that alarm clock and go, Well, I, I really feel like doing this. I get up because I know it's the right thing to do. I want to attack this schedule, attack my day. I have things to do, appointments to keep. Any emotion can, out of control, ruin you. For that matter, jokes, laughing, you know, it's fun, but you can take them to an extreme and it can get a situation out of control. So he disobeyed. Secondly, and more importantly, he didn't represent God the way God wanted to be represented. You didn't hollow me before the people, Moses. You portrayed me as a God who is so angry with them that I'm just ready to boot them. Now God wanted to give them water. He said, speak to the rock, I'll give them water. That was God's response to their disobedience. Now, before God would have judged them, but here God says, I want to refresh them. I know that they've had a long journey. Speak to the rock. I'll give them water. I'll refresh them. So instead of representing God accurately, he misrepresented God, and that is always the danger of leadership. James says, be not many masters, for you shall receive the greater condemnation. God is invisible. Leaders are visible. We must be clear adequate, accurate, lucid representatives of the living God. Moses was not. They started thinking God was angry at them when he was not. Then the other problem is in verse 10, he elevated himself. Must we bring water? What do you mean we? Who's we, boy? God's bringing the water, not you. But he's sort of elevating himself. He's taking the focus now off of God's power and onto himself. If he would have just talked to the rock, it would have been Evident and obvious, this is a miracle of God. Now it was no less miracle to hit the rock, but Moses takes part in it. He takes a little bit of the credit. Here we are, we're going to bring you water, and he starts beating the rock. So he is working at it, drawing the focus of attention, elevating himself before the people as if he is the source rather than the instrument. Thus he again misrepresented God. Moses lifted up his hand, struck the rock twice with the rod. The water came out abundantly. The congregation and the animals drank. This is the graciousness of God once again. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, to hollow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Moses was allowed, later on, to see the land. He stood on Mount Nebo. It's in Jordan today, right above the Jordan River, commanding view, and looked down over the entire land of Israel. He got to see it. He got to see the Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea, Jerusalem, the Spine of Mountains, the Mediterranean, but he didn't get to go in. He said, well, that's pretty harsh. But you know, if God would have been lenient with Moses here it really would have encouraged the children of Israel to be more disobedient than they already had been. They had been so disobedient. Doesn't mean Moses isn't going to heaven because he died and didn't see the promised land. You'll see him there if you get there. If you're in Christ, you'll get there. But again, you're a master, you receive a stricter judgment. There's a higher level of accountability. So Moses got the brunt of that judgment. The children of Israel learned, I think, to fear the Lord. It's the water of Meribah because the children of Israel contended with the Lord and he was hollowed among them. All right. Moses' anger. Man, you think, Moses, where have you been hiding this anger all along? It's always been there. How do you handle anger? There's a number of ways people do. You can do it, number one, by repressing it. I'm just going to push it down. I'm going to cram all my anger down. I won't say anything to anyone. Like Psalm 39, I'll just push it down and that's bad for you. Because it will eventually surface. Repressed anger will show up later on in depression and anxiety. It can have devastating consequences. So you don't pressure it down. The other thing you don't do is the other extreme, vented out of control. You know, every time somebody says, "Ah, Well, I just got to vent it, you know, got to get it out. The Bible in Proverbs talks about the fool shares everything on his heart at the time. There's an interesting form of counseling now, they call it primal therapy, where they will encourage you to vent. Get in a fetal position, kick your legs on the floor, and, <laughs> and pound things with your fists. Keep pounding until it feels natural. I don't know that it would ever feel natural. It's supposed to be good for you. The best way to handle it, not just to vent it all the time, neither to cram it down, but to deal with it biblically. You say, well, how do I deal with it biblically? Number one, take it to the Lord in prayer. Ephesians, or Philippians chapter 4. Be anxious, or be filled with anxiety for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will rule, will reign in your heart. Secondly, seek out godly third-party advice to bounce it off of. Proverbs chapter 20, I can't remember the exact verse, talks about the multitude of counselors, their safety. The third thing to do is a soft answer, God, give me the right response, the response that would come from your heart to this person. Proverbs 15, a soft answer turns away wrath. Next resolve it. Be angry and sin not. Next verse what? Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. When you're on your pillow at night, you're angry with your spouse, have a little pillow talk. Share the hardest words in the English language with your spouse, I'm sorry, or I was wrong. Please forgive me. Resolve it. Be resolved to resolve the anger before you let the sun go down every day, otherwise you're just repressing it and eventually it will come back up then next I would say, realize how much you're forgiven. I'm not going to forgive. That person really got me so mad. Or, I can forgive, but I'll never forget. Oh, stop it. That's so infantile. Choose to forget. Every time it comes up, pray for that person and ask God to wash it from your mind. It can happen. Realize how much God has forgiven you. Matthew 18, you know the story about the guy who owed millions of dollars. And his master forgave him, and he was so excited, but there was somebody who owed him just 25 bucks, and he grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and said, Pay me or I'll put you in prison. The master found out about it, the king, and said, Wait a minute, I forgave you a great debt that you'd never be able to pay, and yet you couldn't forgive this guy who owed you 25 bucks? He said, Deliver him over to the torturers. Here we are, we pray, Father, forgive us our debts, But we're to pray, what? As we forgive those who are debtors against us. Realize how much you've been forgiven, and you know what? You ought to be able to forgive anybody for anything. You say, well, you don't know. Listen, you and I put Jesus on the cross, and he said, Father, forgive them. If he can do that and give you heaven, and we don't deserve it, we should be able to extend forgiveness to those who have shafted us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those. Now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, You know all the hardship that has befallen us, how our fathers went down to Egypt, and we dwelt in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. When we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel, and brought us up out of Egypt. Now here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your border. Please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through fields or vineyards, nor will we drink water from wells. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. Then Edom said to him, You shall not pass through my land, lest I come out against you with the sword. So the children of Israel said to him, We will go by the highway, and if, our, if I or my livestock drink of any of your water, then I will pay for it let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. Then he said, you shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. He asked permission and he sort of gives him a history lesson at the same time. He says, it's Israel, your brother. There was a relation. Edom." was inhabited by the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. These are the descendants of Jacob, the children of Israel. Now, in a sense, they go way back. There's the descendants of Esau, here's the descendants of Jacob. But it's interesting that even back then there was an Israeli-Arab conflict. And there's always seemed to be that conflict throughout history. Later on, Edom hassles Israel. they never get along. Today, Jordan is modern-day Edom and Moab. But here you see an Israeli-Arab conflict way back then. The conflict has raged. I was talking to my brother today. He said, I hear you're going to Israel in May. He goes, I don't know. Can you postpone your trip? I said, Jim, you've been telling me that? I've gone to Israel 16, 17 times now. You tell me that every time. For the last 20 years you've told me to postpone my trip. There's always going to be those factions over there. He goes, well, I guess you just have to be ready to go, you know, when the Lord calls you. And I said, that's it. <laughs> now, the children of Israel, the whole congregation journeyed from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. Now, They're taking a circuitous route here. They have to go all the way back to Elat, which is uh, the Red Sea, is uh, the body of water that surrounds the Sinai Peninsula on two sides. Uh, They're on the eastern part of the Red Sea. They go back to Elat, then they have to go inland over to Arabia and up around. So they're really going out of the way now to get to the land of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled at my word at the water of Meribah. Maybe Aaron looked at Moses and said, Thanks a lot. You take my rod and you beat the rock, and I get hassled for it. Take Aaron and Eleazar his son and bring them to Mount Hor and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son for Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there so Moses did just as the Lord commanded and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation Moses stripped Aaron of his garments put them on Eleazar his son and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain And when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron for thirty days. A whole month was like a funeral dirge. It was customary to take thirty days in Israel and mourn. When Moses died later on, we'll see in the book of uh, Deuteronomy, the last chapter, almost uh, some of the last verses, they mourned thirty days. The Egyptians mourned for 70 days when somebody died. Now, there's a difference. You know, in this country we don't, we're not as close to death as other cultures. I've traveled to many places in the world and people are very familiar and at home with life and death. They see it. When somebody dies they're viewing the dead body. The dead body is in their home. All of the people help to prepare the body and to bury the body with their own hands. Here, we take, take them to the mortuary, we never really see, we never know what has really happened. And then you go into this strange place and they usually play goofy music and it's really a hush-hush kind of a tone and special flowers. And it's just, well, it, it has always struck me as rather odd. And then we compliment a person if they don't mourn. Somebody's there and they're very stoic and we go, she's taking it so well. No, she's not. She should be mourning if her husband has passed away or her son has passed away. She should be in, 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 torn up. We have sort of downplayed grieving in this culture. And I think it's a pity. It's a shame. It's ruined people. They're taking it so well. I encourage people. Have you grieved yet? You, well, no, but, you know, I just think it's God. Listen. Your son died. You ought to mourn over that. They need a release. I watched with my mother for a long time. She wouldn't let herself grieve. And even after my father passed away last year, somebody in the family approached her. Her sister-in-law said, you know, I don't think you've really dealt adequately with your son's death. You need to grieve, and then you need to move on. And it was healthy. Now you say, yeah, but we're Christians, we don't grieve, we celebrate they're in heaven. That is a glib, cheap shot, folks. Yeah, we can rejoice for them, they're in heaven. But what about those who are left behind? Now it says in Thessalonians that we sorrow not as those who have no hope. What he means by that is not that we don't sorrow, it means that we sorrow differently from hopeless worldly people. Their sorrow is hopeless, our sorrow is mingled with hope but we still sorrow. We still grieve. And I love the fact that the Bible talks about Israel mourning for 30 days. Man, they got it out in the open. They would often wear sackcloth, put ashes on their heads. In the New Testament times, there were professional mourners to encourage the people. You'd pay them a certain fee, and they would come to your house, and they would just start crying, and they would make a wail, and they would tear their garments, and they, oh, and they'd play this music, you know, out-of-tune music, and they they did it for a fee so they could turn it on and off. But what that would do is encourage the other people to mourn. Bring it out in the open. I remember growing up, I would hear things like, big boys don't cry. Now, I never really got hassled for crying, but I'd hear other friends. They'd, something would happen. They'd fall down and skin their knee and Their dads would say, now big boys don't cry. So here's a kid, poor kid, by the time he's ten years old, he's figured out that tears and masculinity don't mix. So he grows up thinking, if you're really a man, you don't use your God-given lacrimal ducts that God put in your eyes. For some reason God made a mistake and gave them to men, but we're not to use them. I don't know why they're there. But God forbid that we'd ever let a tear leak out of that little spout. Jesus wept, the shortest verse in the New Testament. And when Jesus wept, the crowd said, Look how he loved Lazarus. So take your cues from the Son of Man. It wasn't a hopeless weeping, but he loved Mary and Martha, Lazarus, as well as the rest of the crowd. So they mourned for thirty days. When the king of Arad, the Canaanite who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Atharim, then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. Now, what's great about this chapter, though, it, there, there are complaints here. It's the eighth complaint, by the way, in this chapter. But now, They've gone from wandering to marching. They're really marching to the land, and they're going to get victory, their first victory, and occupy their first portion of land in this chapter. So, you know, a change. Israel made a vow to the Lord, said, If you will indeed deliver this people, I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord listened to the voice of the Israelites, or Israel, and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them in their cities. So the name of that place was called Hormah. Hormah. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. The King James puts it this way, the heart of the people became discouraged because of the way. The Amplified Bible says, because of the trials of the way. Could that describe you? You're on the way. You're making progress in your Christian life. But certain things have happened. Things haven't worked out like you've planned. And now you're weighed down by discouragement. Now put yourself in their sandals. They've been out there 40 years. A whole generation has died. They're back at Kadesh Barnea. They're so excited. They've heard about this. Oh, man. You know, we've come here before. We had to wander, but now we're back at Kadesh. The land's right in front of us. I can't wait. They're electric with excitement like a kid at Christmas. And Moses is going to come back and say, we can't go that way. We have to turn back. Not only do we have to turn back and go back to a lot where we started from, Etzion Geber was the ancient city's name, but we now have to go inland to Arabia and up. Finally, they became discouraged. All that they dreamed for shattered, discouraged way down. If you are discouraged, first of all realize it's okay. And even as you are a Christian, it doesn't mean that you have to be undiscouraged all the time. Every now and then I'll be caught deep in thought, it's rare. But as I am, and I'm thinking of something, if you were to look at me, you'd think, he's, he's angry, or he's sad, or he's frowning. No, I'm just detached. I'm thinking. Now, i got to watch myself, because sometimes I'll do it in public. And then I'll get cracks, like, well, smile. I don't want to smile. <laughs> I'm deep in thought. I'm thinking about something. There are certain times that you don't have to smile. And as a Christian, you need to know, somebody has to tell you, you don't have to always come to church with a smile on your face. You don't always have to come to church going, glory, hallelujah. You can come beat up. You can come discouraged. We'll accept you. We'll pray for you. Come the way you are. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are excited, all you who are pumped up. He said, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He invited those people. You you need to be able to come to a place where you can say, I am discouraged, instead of people saying, well, you shouldn't be. You're going to heaven. Well, I know that, but I just happen to be discouraged right now. Is that okay? It's okay. There's been many times I've been discouraged. Pursuing the work of the Lord, the will of God, I, I, I come into a brick wall and it just takes the wind out of me sometimes. I remember I was in Southern California. And I know it was probably a lame reason to get discouraged, but I had prayed for so long that God would use me that I'd start a church. I was 24 years old at the time, and I was driving on the 405 freeway south from Orange County to San Diego, and I just said, God, I'm mad at you. I didn't have a right to be mad at God, but at least I was honest. I said, God, time's running out. I'm 24. (laughs) I've been sitting around here in Orange County for years, just waiting, just trying to be diligent, and yet it's like time just goes by, have you forgotten about me? And then it was at that point that God just spoke to my heart. He calmed my heart, and I distinctly remember that God impressed upon me that he was going to do a new work and that I would see an accelerated pace of God moving in my life in the days ahead. I'll never forget it. I, I even remember the road signs right where I was at. God encouraged me, and we'll see God encouraging them in just a minute. When we were over at our other building on Snow Heights, we were so pumped because we were in this building before the old Kaufman's West, and it held like 450 seats. And we were getting into this building that held about 800 seats, 850 seats, 900 if you really cram it in. We had enough money to get in, we were all excited, we thought we were doing everything up to speed, up to code, really working hard to get in on time. Working in the evenings and construction on our own. And then the city comes it says, you can't occupy. You have to put another layer of drywall throughout the entire building. Now we had a guy who was a contractor and got everything approved by the city, I thought. And now the city is telling me it's going to cost us $10,000 and a two-month wait. I walked home, and I was just so defeated, so discouraged, I wanted to just give up. It was just too much. Oh, God, why? I was discouraged because of the way. Have you ever been in that situation? I know I don't really have to ask that question. I know you've been there. I've talked to a lot of you about it. And the people spoke against God, now that's the problem with prolonged discouragement, and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and water, and our soul hates or loathes this worthless bread. We've heard it. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Now they've been saying, God, why didn't you let us die? And God prolonged it. God gave them water instead. God gave them food instead. God cared for them. They griped, and God still blessed them and continued to bless them. God will not always strive with man. God let us die, all right. (laughs) Notice the complaint was against God first of all. They complained against God. You know all sin is against God. David, after committing adultery with Bathsheba, Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I sinned and committed this iniquity in thy sight. Ultimately, sin is against God. Then it says, and against Moses, because Moses is the visible representative of invisible God. And so Moses is the scapegoat, gets blamed for this whole episode of being in the desert. When you're discouraged because of the way and you're mad at God, you take it out on others. And those that complain and point their finger at other people have indicated that they're really mad at God. And then (laughs) they're complaining against the provision here. Our soul hates this worthless bread. They get up in the morning, manna, omelets, manna pot pie for dinner, it gets old. But what they said was wrong. Look at how they put it. There's no food and water. Well, they had quail. They had water out of a rock. And yes, they had bread, manna from heaven. There was food. God took care of them. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. Boy, they got spiritual real quick, didn't they? We have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. It is amazing how affliction gets people on their knees. Have you ever, everything goes good, you just kind of want, you just float through life. And then something comes and broadsides you and it's like you massively seek God. I wonder if God doesn't prescribe certain difficulties from time to time just to hear from us, just to keep us close to him, that place of satisfaction, continued trust in him. I heard a story. I read to you the story one time years ago. There, there was this family down south. They never went to church. People in the community tried to witness to them, but they never responded, never came to church. The pastor paid a visit on them, and, yeah, yeah, we'll show up there. But they just were riotous in their living, and they didn't really care about God. One day a snake bit the older son named Jim. He was in the emergency room in the hospital. It looked like he was going to die. So they called the pastor of the church. The pastor of the church walked in. And here's this guy on the bed, open to God, whatever God wants I'll be open to him. He got news from the doctor before he went into the emergency room stall that Jim was going to live. He'd be okay. It was just a close call. So they said, Pastor, pray for me. And he goes, Oh, I will. Lord, thank you for sending this serpent to bite Jim. Lord, thank you that it took the bite of this snake to get him to seek your face. And, oh, God, would you please send a serpent to bite his brother Tom and his brother Will. And, Lord, send a huge snake to bite the old man so that they all come to know you, Lord, and trust you. We have sinned. They got spiritual all of a sudden. Pray for us. And here's Moses back to his patient, meek M.O. here. Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole. By the way, that's the Asclepius, the symbol, ancient symbol of medicine, the healing that takes place. So it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now it took faith to look at that serpent. In fact, nobody would look at that serpent unless they had faith. You know, you might get a few wise guys out there and Moses said, hey, I made this nifty brass snake. He's on the pole. Whoever looks at this snake will be healed. And I'm sure they thought, oh, it's a wives' tale. Surely it takes more than just looking at a snake on a pole to be healed. There's some medicinal, modern technology that has to be employed. Surely just looking at a snake isn't going to make any difference. It took faith to look. But as soon as they looked, it says they were healed. Now Jesus used this example in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus approached him, when he said you must be born again, how can a man be born when he is old? He said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of man shall be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There are amazing similarities here to the serpent on the pole and Jesus Christ being lifted up on the cross. In the Old Testament, they were bitten by a snake. It started out as a little pain. It progressed into a flaming inflammation and it eventually took their lives physically, and they died. And so it is spiritually. We are bitten by sin. It starts out small. It inflames, consumes our life. We die spiritually, and we must look to Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Now, that, for some people, is absurd and too simple. Well, surely I've got to do something else. I've got to look to my own works, my own religion, my own deeds, my own upbringing, something to be saved. No. It's as complex and as simple as a look of faith and placing your trust in Jesus Christ. You realize that you're a sinner. Well, they realized that they were bitten. Nobody had to tell them that. I'm bitten. Okay, now look at the snake on the pole. A simple look of faith was enough to heal them. A simple tonight look of faith to Jesus Christ. Lord, save me. Lord, I admit I'm a sinner. I've been bitten by sin. Would you please heal me of sin's disease? In one instant he can wipe away all of your sin and make you white as snow. I think we're about out of time so we won't get to the rest of the chapter tonight, but we're not done with this story. This is what happens to this snake. This bronze serpent, bronze is the symbol of judgment, the medal of judgment a snake on a pole. The Asclepius is really a crossed pole, so it's a snake on a cross. It's a symbol of the judgment upon sin. As the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, that's the bronze serpent, the Son of Man will be lifted up, and that means on the cross. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. I've heard that scripture so misinterpreted let's lift Jesus higher tonight, as if that means worship. It doesn't mean worship, it means crucifixion. If I be lifted up, that is on a cross to die, I will draw men to myself. That's what he was speaking of, like the serpent in the wilderness. Now what happened with the children of Israel is they began to worship the icon, the image. In 2 Kings, chapter 18, Hezekiah breaks down the altars and all of the high places, all of the pagan worship spots of the children of Israel, and it says he took the bronze serpent that Israel had burned incense to, and he smashed it. And he said, Nehushtan, which means it's just a thing of brass. They had taken an ancient symbol. They had sort of ossified it, And now they worshiped it. And he looked at it and said, that's that's idolatry, that's paganism. It's just a symbol. It served its purpose, but you don't worship the symbol. And he broke it. It's a thing of brass. When we renovated this church and we took the dove down, there were some people that responded like, Israel and 2nd Kings. It's as if they were bowing down and burning incense to the Most Holy Dove, their icon of Christianity, their little altar of incense of worship. And we got notes and letters, bring back the dove, the Holy Spirit is gone. I felt like bringing it out and smashing it and saying, no it's a thing of brass. It's just an icon. It's just a symbol. Who cares? It's a decoration. Oh, you don't have a cross under your church. We live under the cross, the real cross, Jesus crucified. Besides that, he's risen from the dead. We can become as traditional as the next church, folks. Our little tradition, our little ways of doing things. Be open to change. Now, what a concept. Look at the serpent and be saved. Just that look. Here's a guy over there dying by a snake. Hey, Shlomo, look over there. There's a bronze serpent. You're healed if you look. Oh, that's ridiculous. My grandmother believed in those things. I'm not going to look. I'm not the religious sort. Shlomo, you're dying. Just look. No, that's, that's for weak-minded people. As he kicks the bucket out in the dust. But that look of faith, just take a look, wow, boom, you're healed. Now tonight, there could be some here tonight. Oh, you've been around the religious block. You've heard all the stories of the Bible since you were a kid. Oh, they're nice stories to you. Yeah, it's cute. But you don't know that looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, would really save you, cleanse you from all of your sin. You might rationalize and think, no, I'll look to myself, I look to my education, I look to my background. And you, if you do that, will die in your sins. But look to Jesus. You see, if I'm right and you're wrong, you have everything to lose by staying in your position. Let's say I'm wrong, and you're right. Let's say it doesn't really mean anything. You just die and you go into oblivion. You're still much smarter and much safer to believe in Jesus Christ. Okay, let's say it's all a pipe dream and and, and we all die and go into oblivion. Let's say I'm wrong. So you believe in Jesus. What have you lost? But if I'm right and you're wrong, you've lost it all. Are you willing to bet your eternal life that you're right and that the Bible's wrong? Are you not willing to look to Jesus tonight on that cross? That's the position of a fool. You know, try him. Take him at his word test, taste, and see if the Lord is good. You've got testimony witnesses all around here Said, I've accepted Christ, yeah, I received Jesus, I remember my life's being changed and has been changed. You've got living testimonies all around you. If you, tonight, are in this place and you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, that is the most important decision you must make because you have been bitten and you are dying. And eventually, you will be separated spiritually for all of eternity. Are you willing to maintain your position apart from God and bet your eternal life that the Bible's wrong? I don't think you want to do that. Let's pray. Lord, you are so gracious, even in the midst of judgment. As you judge sin, you provided an escape. Lord, so many of us have looked unto Jesus, and we have been saved, and so, Father, we would ask for those who would be around us tonight, sitting in this auditorium, or those who are listening over the radio, who have been looking to a religion, who have been trusting and looking to themselves, their education, hiding behind a false wall of security. I pray, Lord, as they have been bitten by the serpent and are dying in sin, and the only solution as Jesus pointed out, was that a person would believe in him just as people in the Old Testament looked to that serpent being lifted up. And so, Father, we ask, we pray, that you would draw men and women to yourself tonight, bring them to a place of surrender, realizing that they're sinners, and asking Jesus Christ to forgive them of their sins, being willing to repent of them tonight, if you've come, and as we're just meditating upon our own condition, if you would realize and admit, yes, I am a sinner, I have been bit, but I am willing tonight to look to the cross of Jesus Christ and to commit and surrender my life to him and ask for forgiveness. I'm willing to do that. If that's true of you, I'd like you to raise your hand right now and say, I'm going to give my life to Jesus tonight and ask for forgiveness of my sins. Raise your hand up right now and keep it up and I'll pray for you as we close. I see you and you and you toward the back, you over to the right, God bless you in the back. Anybody else? Keep it up so I can see your hand. Some of you put it up and down. I didn't get a chance to acknowledge you and pray. Over here to the left. Anyone else? You two and three and four. Anybody, if God is speaking, now's the time to surrender. Like a drowning man, put your hand up and say, Jesus, take my hand, pull me up, save me. I look to you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Back in the back. Father, for all of these now who have their hands up, you see not only their hands, but you notice the depths of their hearts. You notice their feelings. Lord, you know what they have done. And yet we know what you have done to take away all that they have done. And Father, we pray that as they receive Jesus into their heart, you would fill them with a sense of peace, of belonging to God, of new hope and joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In name we pray. Amen, we pray. Amen, Amen. we pray. Amen, we pray. Amen, we pray. Amen, we pray.